that where I call it facing the dragon, you know, and when we, when we bought dope as a new detective, you know, that was always a thing. If you went in a trap house, made your first UC buy us facing the dragon, and you can apply that to different situations, and these guys were uh, different situations in police working on the way I like to say it, they were freaking facing the dragon, man, blazing right up in there and into this, into this gun battle. Let's just be honest, you know, but you're expected to rise to that occasion and man I saw so many people that did and it was it was inspiring and you know I push into that lobby of El Centro and it, it looked it looked like one hell of a shootout had gone on inside the lobby all the glass was broken up there was glass everywhere the gun, gun smoke had settled halfway down in the room and it was dead ass quiet I catch somebody running around the corner with shadow, and it's Danny Canetti. And he's just dead sprint toward us. He tells me, dude, we've got him pinned down. We've been in a gunfight a couple of weeks. We've a gunfight with him, and we need to move. Let's go. To that point where I got up on the second floor, I knew this enemy was, uh, was different. But even more frightening, I knew that his mental mindset was what you hear about, what you train for but that you don't ever see. And here he, here he was. It can't be this bad, it can't be this wrong, but you've already done what you've done, and I'll kill you as soon as I can, as soon as I get a chance. You're listening to the ATL Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisted Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. All right, welcome back to the ATO Bridge and the Divide podcast. Uh, this is part two of the great Matt Baines. Uh, his first episode was so good, we didn't want to cut it, cut it short. And we wanted him to tell the story of his involvement on 7-7-2016, Dallas, Texas. Yep, thanks for having me back, guys. Uh, it's an absolute honor just to be able to share it, you know, be honest with you and hang out with you guys. So I think it's probably appropriate to kind of set the tone for that massacre that we had. Um, and, you know, y- y'all were here. Uh, 2016, in general, was just a very, very brutal year for law enforcement um it's kind of stayed that way since but but 2016 was in my opinion from my experience uh, especially from a uniformed officer perspective when we really started noticing um a change in the tides whether whether it was politically influenced um or which in my opinion it kind of was but even the citizen, you know, because the politicians really started becoming just heavily involved in police incidents. And it just hasn't really been the case uh, in my 20-year career. And we started really seeing us uh, 
police officers being judged by presidents and politicians and people who have really no business or, or no insight on what a law enforcement career is or, or what a police officer does in general. And that really, in my opinion, again, it, it, you could see the tide starting to change and, and the public in general started looking at law enforcement in a negative, you know, less respected sort of manner. And it, it incited uh, resistance and non-compliance um, across the United States. And that, you know, we had the Black Lives Matter protests going on, and that kind of set the stage for the tragedy, the biggest tragedy in law in my law, law enforcement uh, career in the history of my 20-year career in our nation. And so that there's the tone for you. And I think the police department had done their due diligence in vetting this this protest group and it, they were seen as a low threat level and you know in general the protest was it was a, kind of a I think DPD put on a, a clinic you know put on a, a show for the rest of the law enforcement agencies on how to provide and, and protect for for these people that oppose us and oppose law enforcement um, oppose law and order and we, you know, it, it went off without a hitch until the very end where the lone gunman changed everything. And so that, that night, um, that evening, I was on assigned to a tag beat, you know, the hot beats where you're supposed to be present, you know, present and just detour crime by standing there in a uniform in a police car, you know, works, works wonderful as we all know. But, uh, so we weren't actively engaged in the protest. Um, had we had we been assigned to the protest, my personal belief is things would have been a lot different, you know, because when SWAT is assigned to something, they're going to be all over it. And, you know, you're going to have a lot of preventative measures. You know, you're going to have over, overwatch on the rooftops. You'll have snipers. You'll have surveillance. You'll have react teams. You'll have everything staged and ready to go on the X. Um, could have had a very, very good, quick response to any sort of critical incident that may have occurred, but we weren't. We were on tag beats, and so the radio. I'm sure you guys have all heard the radio traffic, and it was it was horrible, right? Um, the assist officer goes out, um, and then they they kept coming out, and it was. I'm thinking, you know, uh, a group of people, and I honestly didn't even necessarily relate it. To the, to the protest, I thought it was more like a terrorist attack because we had shooters in the parking garage, the Omni, El Centro, the streets. You know, there was four or five different locations that came out as, an, as, as officers down and, and someone shooting at officers um, in downtown. So I, I kind of was prepared for a organized, concentrated, well-thought-out, well-planned-out attack against law enforcement. And dealing with that, you know, running running code three all the way down there. And were you guys here that night? And remember, it was just kind of getting dark. Mm -hmm. And you, you remember the red and blue lights that were just pouring from every direction into downtown. It was it was epic, man. It was. And and you're you're worried about you know because you know some cops gonna come out on two wheels right in front of you, and and, and sure enough, you know, so you you're ready for that but you're also preparing for a battle um, 
because that's what's going on actively in the streets and you can hear it on the radio and so that's what I did was just get down there as quickly as I as I possibly could and you know I took the time to to put my body armor on uh, my heavy vest I even grabbed my helmet and I'm jerking my rifle out of the out of the box in the back and you know keep the, the rifle slings hung up on shit inside the box you know and I'm seeing these other officers on foot sprinting past me and they're wearing their neon traffic vest and and little pistols and man headlong charging and I'm, I'm over here trying to get my rifle out of my deal and I just remember feeling like dude come on you know I mean these guys are the, the, trying to describe really the heroism the bravery that I witnessed in in our Dallas officers that were I call it facing the dragon you know and when we, when we bought dope as a new detective you know that was always the thing if you went in a trap house made your first UC by us facing the dragon and you can apply that to different situations and these guys were um, different situations in police working in the way I like to say it they were freaking facing the dragon man blazing just right up in there and into this into this gun battle and it was uh, it's hard to describe you know I'm, I'm sure soldiers at war can relate obviously um, and what's funny is you know there's the, there's the comedy skit well these we're police officers we're not trained for that and be honest with you we're not no. we're not we don't go through boot camp you know I was in the military I did go through boot camp but but we don't deal with explosives uh, you know all this you know your patrol officer is not trained for that let's just be honest you know but you're expected to rise to that occasion and man I saw so many people that did and it was it was inspiring and it, it takes any it took any doubt away from me um, on slowing down or, 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 or backing off my speed because man I I charged up in there just as just as hard but behind them you know and you know when they when they see the SWAT show up Misty you know they kind of they'll part the seas and like oh you got it I'm like who me <laughs> you know, like Shit, I was following y'all, you know. Um, I I ain't got jack, but okay, here we go. So I get down there, and I'm making my way to the college, just kind of working against the flow of traffic, you know, uh, pedestrian traffic. They're, they're all getting off the X, and PD is pushing into the X, and I see uh, the remains of an officer on the sidewalk, and I could deduct pretty quickly that it was an officer because the Oakleys, the Glock magazine and, the, you know, police gear that was laid out on the concrete and that sucked, you know, and it was outside the college. And, you know, I pushed into that lobby of El Centro and it, it looked it looked like one hell of a shootout had gone on inside the lobby. All the glass was broken. There was glass everywhere. The gun, gun smoke had settled halfway down in the room and it was dead ass quiet you know and you could you could see officers working wide angles some of them were just pinned down some of them were not knowing which way to go or what to do and I don't re remember how but I ended up in the stairwell following a blood trail with uh, Scott and we slide that door open and we see a nice grouping in the concrete where he had shot from overhead 
the blood trail's going up the, the stairwell. There's a divot where he had, you know, nice concentration, probably five or six rounds into the concrete. And then all that debris was scattered everywhere. And coming into that stairwell, you know, you're worried about your long cover, your back cover, your overhead cover. And, you know, there's, there's not enough of us to, to cover all that. So we're sneaking up there. And we come to that first landing, and you could see where he had barricaded himself or not barricaded, but he had positioned himself for the ambush because there was a nice pile of blood on the ground, and he had written on the wall, you know, some initials in his, in his own blood, and he had already ambushed an El Centro police officer that came in that stairwell after him, and that was what that grouping was from. And we entered out onto the second floor, and the carpet was, you know, a little darker color, and so the blood trail just completely disappeared. And we're at you know, holding both directions. There's a hallway this way. It opens back over here, a library over here. And I catch somebody running around the corner, the shadow, and it's Danny Canetti. And he's just dead sprint toward us. And, you know, he's he tells me, dude, we've got him pinned down over here. We've been in a gunfight a couple. We're, we're in a gunfight with him. And we need to move. Let's go. And I linked up with him, and me and Danny pushed down there, and... When I get there, the visual pucker factor was immense. You know, there's uh, debris, sheetrock, glass, shell casings piled up in the floor. And you have Henry Edwards, Brandon Barry, Ryan Scott, me and Kennedy linked up with them, Joe Lopez, that are standing, standing stout on this corner, holding long down this hallway. And I could tell all hell had already broken loose um, and they're dead quiet and they're trying to make a plan and I show up with all the gear I had gas bangs gas mask um, I had everything you need you know for the most part I didn't have a launcher or 40 mil or anything but I was pretty kitted out and so we'd start deciding hey let's let's throw a bang down here and I, I had a bang and I they're like banging bangs I'm like I'm not sure that's such a good idea, you know. Uh, this isn't a dope dealer, you know, and, and this dude's movements, his tactics, everything that I deserve, observed on a sprint from when I left my Tahoe to what I saw to that point where I got up on the second floor, I knew this enemy was uh, was different, you know. I knew he was maybe on our level with some things, um, but even more frightening, I knew that uh, his mental mindset was what you hear about, you know, and what you train for, but that you don't ever see. And here he, here he was, and it, it drug all due respect out of me for the guy. Um, and I'm looking at this bang like, man, that's probably gonna, we're gonna have a consequence when we do this. We're gonna throw this and there's gonna be a consequence. So I hand it to the next guy. I'm like, have at it, man. I'll hold, throw the bang, and we'll see what we get. And I think everybody had that same thought, like this probably isn't going to be a good idea. Anyway, long story short, the bang ends up back in my bang pouch, and we're coming up with options. Um, Kennedy decides we're in a shitty spot, which we were. And he, had, when I got there, I assessed the situation, and I'm shooting, you know, the old uh, Winchester ballistic tip we used to shoot great round until you hit a 
piece of paper or anything else that it's got to penetrate through and it's going to deflect you know and if you're shooting soft tissue or even through clothing it's probably what you'd want to use but in this situation I thought we we're going to be I was going to probably shoot through a door some walls some glass some intermediate barriers and so uh, I did a magazine change and I put the bonded ammo in for some some more uh, penetration um, barrier rounds and when I did that you know, I slammed the mag, I rack it, and that prompted him. And I, at this point, I didn't realize that this dude is, like, right there. How close? Let's say 25 feet, 30 feet. How'd you know he was right there? Because he shot about 15 fucking rounds right at us. <laughs> as, soon as, I, as soon as I chambered that bonded ammo, here comes all the sheetrock, the muzzle flash, he, he takes a wide angle on us. It was, God, it was phenomenal. You know, he just, you get this little sliver of him. He's off court, off cover. He's not crowding his cover. His muzzle clears the corner by two feet. Ba 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 ba. And he just, he, he wide angles, leans out. You catch a little sliver, and then just that AK started barking, and that sheetrock started busting. And Brandon Barry's holding point on him, you know. And scared the hell out of me. Like I physically jumped. And, they didn't flinch and i'm thinking like why did i have such a reaction in these dudes but so i'll tell you why is because they had already gotten in a couple gunfights with them and they were kind of acclimated <laughs> i'm just kidding i think it's just because i'm a bitch and they were you know but that, that's why that's why i say it just it, it literally just scared me to the point where I, I jumped like you wouldn't believe um anyway i was just kind of more of a testament to them that they were dug in man and they they held that and didn't even flinch. I've never seen anything like that. It's pretty, pretty badass dudes, really, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, so Kennedy's like, we're all in agreement that this sucks. We're uh, we're in a bad spot. Um, I was the only one that opposed moving because we were going to give up our line of sight and pushing into this stairwell. When he when he pushes down on us, first of all, he could escape because the the way the building was designed. He could either leapt across that hallway and there was an elevator bank right there. And now he's on the loose again. He had two options, leaping across the hallway or pushing straight through us. So he was kind of trapped. Um, and if we gave up that hallway, that's it. I mean, hopefully he pushes on us as opposed to getting in the elevators. So we were kind of debating that. But when that other volley of fire came through, they are like, yeah, we're out of here. And so I took point. I said, okay, I'll hold. Y'all push across, and I'll, I'll hold. And, man, as soon as they pushed across that dead space to get into that concrete stairwell, me and this dude went at it. Um, and I had just qualified. I had rifle calls that morning. And uh, didn't clean. You know how sometimes when you're, when you're in a hurry, I... I didn't clean my rifle, but I dumped a half gallon of lube on it, you know, and so the first five or six rounds are just fireballs and smoke because it's got all that wet lube on your bolt and it's burning off down your barrel. And man, I saturated the whole, we might as well have banged him because there was that much smoke that, uh, that I put down the hallway and of course his smoke from, and so he got real hazy in the hallway after, after, um, I let loose with that rifle, and did you have a sight picture? I I had the same. He did the little bitch move where he sticks the rifle around the corner, 
and just starts banging the trigger. And I see the muzzle flash clearly. And so I pied out a little more than I, than I probably should have and just started walking boom, boom, boom this way into the, into the corner, into that sheetrock. And just one round after the next with the penetrator, with those bonded rounds, you know. And he stopped shooting. Never shot another round after that. And, you know, I was kind of telling you guys earlier about the <clears throat> physiological effects, you know, your auditory exclusion, and that's what I had again, you know, and I, I was kind of deaf, but, man, I could see, I could see our smoke meet in the hallway. I could see my gun smoke and his smoke meet in the hallway, literally, and, and they were had momentum, and they twisted. And so then I'm getting all psycho on myself, and I'm like, like a... Like a little kid thinking the boogeyman's coming, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's gonna appear, he's gonna run, I see this vision, mm -hmm. he's gonna run right through this smoke behind that muzzle flash. And it's gonna be the last thing I see. This is this is it, this is where I'm gonna die. This is and I'm just gonna hammer down until the end, you know, and you start thinking, Man, what's this gonna feel like? Because it's an active gunfight. And I've got sheetrock in my eyes and I know I'm I know one of these is gonna hit me. It's just, you know, because why wouldn't how are they not gonna hit me? I'm standing here. And um, he never, he never pushed out. And then my hearing fades back in. Um, I think Danny Kennedy did a very good job because he said they were yelling at me, Baines, you gotta move, you're gonna die, you gotta move. And I wasn't responding because I'm locked in. And then they started the name calling. <laughs> you know, some pretty colorful names that he called me. I'm like, and I look over there like, what the hell? And he's like, and his, his face is like, you could, I could tell he'd been chewing on me a while. You gotta move now. You're gonna die. And so, I on ass from the corner. I bail into the stairwell, and right about that time, we had put a robot in that hallway, and we had the transmitter in our hands, and so we didn't give up visual. So we held the hallway with a robot. Could you see him? No. We didn't want to get the robot close enough to him. All we were cared about is is. If see a flash picture if he jumps across or getting ready if he came and he pushed down on us because without that visual it would have been coming around the corner he'd have been it would have been face to face and whoever gets lucky survives and you know probably we would, one of us at least would have died on that type of deal and so uh, we used the robot as our eyes and then we started the conversation with him you know and man this guy uh I don't really know how to, you know, I don't want to seem over dramatic or, but I don't know how you can in a situation like this. I mean, it was a dramatic situation as, as you can have on planet Earth. I mean, it's an active shooter. You know, what, what's, what's, besides a hostage rescue, I'm going to ask you, Misty, what's, what's more dicey, an active shooter or a hostage rescue? What do you think? <coughs> dicey? What's dangerous. Mm, active shooter for me. I think in your I, situation, I, right there, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think I think it's right there. You know, when you got when you got somebody committed that I'm going to kill my own children, and you got to push in that room on that person, that's almost a no-win situation. An active shooter who's that committed mentally, it's a no-win situation. Yep. So, I, I to me, I just tactically, I don't know. It's it's as bad as you're going to get. An active shooter or a hostage rescue, you know, and. Did you have I, that warm whiskey feeling you described? I did. I did when um, when I started looking at that smoke, kind of circling around itself, and the, and the muzzle flash slowed down, and I could see sparks. 
almost like a kid, you know, when you played with the sparklers. And so I asked my buddy, old Lee Bollinger, you know, who's who's my ballistic expert? So I called Lee up. I said, what's with the sparks, man? He said, that was an AK, that's a 21 caliber. It was not an AK-47. And me and this bad guy, we discussed that, actually. We discussed his weapons platform. So he's an AK-74. It's a steel core jacketed, copper jacketed round that he was shooting. And so if you see the video of him out in the street shooting all the sparks, is because that steel core is hitting the concrete. And that sucker's moving so fast and it was hitting sheetrock, drywall, and the, the aluminum framing and steel studs within the building. That's where all the sparks were coming from. And I remember being so distracted by these sparks that were zipping all over the place in the hallway. I'm like, what kind of magic shit is he, you know? <laughs> and I was like, whatever this is, is going to get my ass. But, Whenever you're talking to him and he's describing his, his weapons and, yeah. and, and you're realizing what you've already kind of figured, this isn't your average right. street criminal. This is somebody that's well prepared. How did that make you feel when he, when you were hearing him discuss weaponry that, that you know sure. about yourself? Well, his vernacular even, you know, I ask him, I'm like, dude, I know you're bleeding. I know you're shot. Uh, I can get you medical attention and a microphone. What do you need? And he's, uh, he tells me, I'm good, man. I got my tourniquets. I got my camel back. I got TAC med kit. I said, my first question is, are you a cop? And, you know, he... What did he say? Fuck you. Fuck no, I'm not a cop. I, I, I'm here to kill as many white cops as I can. And, but I, I knew, dude, this guy knows weapons. He's had training. You know, his tactics, his moves are, are tactical. They're graceful. They're smart. Um, there were there what I would do if I was trying to defend against uh, you know a tactical team he was doing it and we couldn't get him we couldn't kill him you know and he was killing us though one right after the next and so I gave this dude his due respect you know and he wasn't uh, a dumbass and I actually he he was quick witted. It's actually kind of funny. I mean, it's it's hard to say that because yeah, all the things he did. Because doing this, talking about this stuff, you always have to. I try to always have the utmost respect for those five widows. Oh, God, hurts to even say it, but but so so it's hard to talk about this guy in any sort of credible manner and not feel like you're insulting people. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the hardest things to do, um, but yeah. Look at I mean you're not giving you're giving him a credit for being a formidable adversary. Yeah, more sure. than most people would encounter in a lifetime or ever. Yeah, unless you're in combat with uh, going against other soldiers that are trained. Right. This is so unique in policing. This type of bad guy. This isn't the guy that's that's driving up in a in a maroon Honda. You know, or, or just right. you know, I mean, real, <laughs> exactly. this or, yeah. or the, this the guy you deal with twenty times a day out in patrol, or even you're trying to buy dope from. It's not this is this is a right. unique animal, and it's important for law enforcement listeners to to know that, you right? Know? And, and I don't think that we've done a good job as a police department in that regard. What you know, I hear is true warrior from your part. You're giving your enemy the ultimate respect. Oh, I didn't mean to. He earned it. You know what I mean? But that's. It, it, right. But yeah. you have to yeah. respect your enemy. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. To beat them. Yeah, you have to have a have a, a healthy level of fear and respect for someone that if that is that trained, that committed, that knowledgeable, and just that deadly, that dangerous. And, and police officers have to know that. Have to know that. Um, and this this whole let's sweep this under the rug, let it go away, let it let's not talk about this. I I, I object. I object wholeheartedly. I think that that's not safe. Uh, but then you have those fine lines you have to walk because those people have families. Right. And maybe those families do need for this to go away. And they win. I'll tap out. I, you know, I, I'm, you have a right to grieve however you grieve when, when someone's taken from you in that manner. And, and I have total respect for that, you know. So this guy... Um, I thought he was a cop, you know, or, or at least a military guy, which he ended up being. But uh, he didn't give any credence to his military service at all whatsoever. Um, he he actually was like, man, I didn't they didn't teach me anything over there. I just I just built stuff for the for the man, you know, and um, didn't learn it. He goes, this is all me. This is mental preparation, physical preparation. I'm sober. I'm healthy, mind and body. And then he would just scream, black power, you know. And I mean, everybody would dump their safeties when he would do that. It was like, here we go. And you, the pucker factor would would uh, heighten, and we're ready for the charge, you know. And we talked um, for 30 or 40 minutes, you know. Kennedy talked to him. Brandon talked to him. I talked to him. Uh, we talked weapons, you know. We He, he got into... When Larry Gordon, lead negotiator, got there, when it drug out for many hours, three or four hours, they had, you know, a very long conversation about philosophies, religions, um, beliefs. And, you know, he would sing. You'd hear him singing songs, you know. And and it was, uh, it almost helped me in a weird sort of way because he wasn't taking this very serious in a sense that he's down there singing a song. And he is resolved to the fact that he's not, that's, that's where he's going to die is right there. And he's totally comfortable with that. He's totally cool with that. He's accepted it. And he would sing and he would crack jokes that were sort of kind of funny. You know, it's, it's weird. It was somebody that I'm like, I would have a beer with you, man. I would have a beer with you, dude, if you would just snap out of it. You know that there's, it can't be this bad. It can't be this wrong. And but you've already done what you've done, and I'll kill you as soon as I can. As soon as I get a chance. I'm, but in any other any other light, you could be friends with this dude. That was the impression that he gave me. Um, yeah. You know, the last episode, uh, Lieutenant Owens was on, and he was talking about negotiators and some of the stuff they go through, and they build a rapport with mm-hmm. the person they're negotiating with, and. And I think hearing you say this, that makes it me, what he said, more normalized because y'all are, you're sitting there talking to this person, you're trying to get inside their head to get them calmed down. So I think, you know, the guilt you might feel about maybe disrespecting the families is not as bad as what you think because I think that's a very normal thing. I think didn't you, you did some negotiating stuff, so I'm sure you know that that's kind of normal that you're going to you know, like you said, respecting your adversary, and I think that's, you know, Lieutenant Owens talked about it. some other negotiators. They mm-hmm. felt guilty after their people have killed themselves. 
Sure. So I, I, you know, I, you know, that's a normal. From my perspective, I think yeah. that's a normal thing. That but I always it. try to. If I would have been killed, you know, I have a twin brother who's in law enforcement. He's a sergeant over at Fort Worth, and I think in, in these five dead officers, their wives, um, their kids, and they listen to this stuff. You know, I'm sure they do. And they're like, man, this officer's in here. Even saying anything that I can contrive is remotely credible or positive or about this piece of shit. I, I don't want. I don't ever want to. I don't ever want to do that. No, you know? I think. Well, yeah. you, you nailed it too. You said if I get a chance, I'm going to kill him. So sure, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, he earned that. He earned that death. I mean, from what oh, he yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go, go back to the hallway. The robot shows up and you got eyes on it. So what, you know, people know what happened, but mm-hmm. can you explain a little further what happened on that? Sure. So the robot we were using for, for um, surveillance, basically, was a just a small throwbot robot. It was, you know, it didn't have any sort of capabilities other than kind of cruising around and with a camera on it. We got the, the big robot, um, and we got it all geared up in our explosive breachers. You know, you know how big critical police incidents every you know the details are always going to be different on who you ask so all all I can speak for is what I saw and I heard from standing there right Um, whether it's even entirely accurate or not but I know I know what I saw and what I heard the the robot bomb plan idea was hatched from Marshall Milley Mm -hmm. and you know he said it in a manner that I laughed. I'm like, dude, you've been watching some damn cartoons, man. We're going to send a bomb down there on a robot and boom, okay, dude. Whatever. And, and then, you know, when, I, when my reaction to him, he kind of shrugged and was like, well, you know, like I hurt his feelings or something, you know. How'd he say it? He, well, he's, so we're, our faces are like this, you know. We're both trying to hog primary, you know. Okay. We're sweating on each other. And he, he had showed up after we pushed into the concrete stairwell, and he's like, Dude's down there asking for a phone, and Marshall's like, Shh. "Y'all know Marshall?" Oh yeah. yeah. He's like, "Man, if this dumbass is asking for a cell phone, we ought to just blow his ass up." And that's how he says it, you know. Okay. He says it just right there, without even missing the beat. And so I smart off. I'm like, "Dude, you've been watching cart," you know. So he shrugs it off, and, he, and then somebody says, "That's a good idea, man. Let's send this up." And so. Juante or somebody, I forget who it is, gets on the phone, calls Seibel, and I hear Seibel on there, wait, what? <laughs> Same type of thing, what? <laughs> and uh, he's like, I like it, I like it, hold on, let me get it approved. Ran it up the chain, approved, and so they hatched the plan right there, man, and they start, uh, they went in the library, and they got a book, and no, I don't know what library book it was. Mm-hmm. But you don't? I, don't, I was I mean, getting right out. I'm now. telling you, I wish I would have known. And they get a library book for the frame, the, char- uh, the frame of the charge, you know. Okay. And they take a knife, and they cut a big circle in it, and they, Misty, you know more about this than I do. They wrap it with debt cord. I'm not no, I don't know what grain, or any of that. And they pack. I'm going to say, a half pound of C4 in that donut hole. So they make a nice little donut, and they fill the hole with a half pound of C4. Might have been a pound. Don't know. And they wrap it in a hundred mile an hour tape and put it in the mandrels of the robot and there's our little delivery guy you know and Larry Gordon I mean this dude was real sketchy and he was real skittish skittish and so Gordon kind of lubed him up a little bit hey man we got it coming 
Now it's loud and clanky, and, and he put it in the hallway and did some back and forth with it. Now relax, relax, you know, and got him accepting of the robot. And you know, Johnny Five goes down the hallway, kind of does a little bit of a wide angle, and there he is, proned out, battle position, sniper prone position on the ground, looking at the robot, studying it, and then they go to detonate short count. Ready, ready now. Nothing. Nothing. What? Nothing. What's going through your mind? Oh shit! And we had already pushed down off the stairwell because we didn't know if we were gonna drop the damn college down on us or what. You know, we didn't know how how bad, and we're close. So we needed to get some uh, some distance to protect ourselves. So we gave up everything, and we hear ready, ready now. Yeah, I, I can't remember if it was too been too many years, but. Out of nowhere, it wasn't in, in, in conjunction with any short count, just the boom, that low boom, mm-hmm. that thump. And then you hear ta 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 And we're like, damn, he escaped. He got he created enough distance and he got out of there and now he's shooting again. Um, which was not the case. Uh, you know, after the literally the dust cleared. Did you guys see that place up there? Yeah. I wanna go back to whenever the when the when Johnny Five rounded the corner. And you like you see him laying there, proned out, staring right at it. Mm-hmm. And I, what was on the screen is what you're looking at, right? Yeah. I I heard that. What was it? You hear the thud, and you still see that same image frozen. because it's frozen. Yeah. That's the last image right. that once the bomb went off. That, yeah. yeah, and that it was frozen. So some people were were kind of, what's going on? What happened? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There was uh, twenty seconds of kind of panic you know mm-hmm. shit we've we've fumbled this one bad right he's on the loose you know everybody but we had so much perimeter with gang unit patrol narcotics mm-hmm. everybody was locked down so everybody was everybody was you know waiting for this target to present itself at any any second um and we pushed down chris webb pushed down and gets a visual on him and i think they might have even breached a hole in the wall and peeked through the wall if i remember correctly and they see him doing the death rattle, finger still in the trigger guard, and they let him pass, you know, a couple seconds. And uh, then we all push down on him, and and like uh, Owens was saying about the losing a losing a VP to a suicide. Sometimes you just got to go see your adversary. And so we're standing like in a half moon. Me, Kennedy, Brian, and Ryan standing above him. I got my rifle light. I mean, it's pitch black in there. There's electrical wires and shit all over the mm-hmm. place. There's debris. This dude's under a pile of debris, and we're looking at him, and people are asking me, well, man, at that moment, at that moment, what are you thinking? And I was thinking, well, piss on him. You know, I'd piss on this dude. And, and people are like, well, that's foul. <laughs> and, but you, you got to have a chance to explain yourself. You know what I mean? Um, I know what damage he had inflicted by then. We had been messing with him for four hours. I got all the intel dumps. I knew what he had done. Um, I knew the the challenge that he was, and um, we were victorious. And we had extracted due vengeance. And tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I just, you know, it was... Was, Here, take this with you when you go down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. those um, were double. Those were double fingers. Y'all couldn't see that, so he gave yeah. Yeah, I just want to say it. But, you know, 
people are like, you want to pee on him? It's like, you know, it's not like that, you weirdo. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a different. And if you don't understand, then you probably won't. You probably won't understand. Right. Um, but, you know, it was, I'm, I know I'm going home. I know my boys here, right here, we're going home. I know this is over. And that's really when the difficult part starts, to be honest with you. You know, when you start hearing the stories of of these uh, people left behind and these families. And, you know, I, I didn't go to any funerals because I couldn't, you know. Um, after Norm Smith's mother, I, I can't be around people when officers are lost. I can't be around. The grief. I just, I, ain't, I can't do it, man. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I mean, weakness, you know, whatever, whatever it's called, I just, I can't do that. I didn't go to any funerals, you know, I haven't. I've had very limited contact if, with, with any of those family members, and, and I hope they, I don't know if anybody else has or has not. Um, to me, it's just too difficult to, you know, I got three teenage boys, you know, and everybody wants to talk about, you know, July 7th, but, you know, talk about those families and those officers while you're at it, you know what I mean? Right. And because that's the tragedy. You know, it was an ep epic, historic event. But those families were changed forever, you know, and in such a cowardly, chicken shit manner, you know, and so I always, you always got to take the, the time to give that part of the, the story, you know. Um, I don't know how they've carried on. I think of my family without me, and. I don't know. Somebody say something. <laughs> well, you've taken us from an 18-year-old kid in the Coast Guard all the way to this point. You've taken us through a foot chase and fights and trap houses and buying dope and flip-flops and being trapped. And then and then yeah. now we're here. So you, this career, things build up. Sure, yeah. And it, at some point it has to go somewhere. And, and so how do you cope? How do you process it? How do you, you know, finish? Uh, there's a there's a lot to the to the Matt Bain story. You know, my I had a buddy in high school commit suicide. You know, and oddly enough, I had a guy, in a, a roommate in the military, who shot himself in our living room floor. You know, and then being a police officer, you go to these suicides, and then being in SWAT, you go to the BPs. And I've I, I've seen I don't know 100 people not being able to cope with life. You know, and 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 take suicide as a as an escape. And I see what that does, how unfair, how how absolutely selfish that is to do. And so I, I, uh, I'm not going to go there. You know, I, I'm going to cope with, with my life. I'm going to man up and I'm going to deal with what situations I need to. Because look at these other people. I know people who have handicapped children who daily life is a absolute struggle. My boys are healthy. Uh, my marriage is strong. Um, I don't have any complaints. So just because just because uh, you know somebody tries, I get in a badass death match or a gunfight or or get held hostage. Man, I'm blessed. And I look at these people through life's events, deaths, illnesses, tragedies, birth defects. That daily life is a struggle, and I'm not gonna be a bitch. You know. Uh, under any circumstances because of I see people that have legitimate struggles and people that have legitimate loss and 
So that's that's kind of my motto, and that's what I try to teach my boys, you know, um, to be men. And that's how I, that's how, you know, my, my, my mom, bless her heart, she's like, oh, you've been through. And I'm like, Mom, I really, on a relative scale, I've just had some crazy stories. You know, I'm not, I hadn't been, I've been hit in the head with a brick, stabbed, this and that, and the other thing. But I hadn't been shot, I'm not, I'm not gimped up, you know, I'm not, I'm not wounded. I'm, I have my mental faculties. I'm good. I'm good. My family does. And so it's, it's not, once you start feeling sorry for yourself, look at the, look at the guy next to you. You see some real struggles sometimes. And that's just kind of how I've learned as a young man, um, you know, what suicide and what, when you give up, what it does to the people that, that, that are left behind and what the, the people that love you. And I ain't going to go there. I, I, I got too much for my family, my, my, not only my my wife and kids, but my brothers, my mom and dad, to to even to not be able to cope with life, you know. So, anyway, you have so much experience to offer, and you have young patrol officers listening to you right now, and I'm sure you've changed as a person throughout your career. Give them some advice. Um, so, two ways I've kind of changed through this professionally and personally. Um, my brother helped me with this because that's a hard question, you know, and you guys had asked me that earlier. How has this changed you both professionally and both personally? I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know. So, and my brother's like, dude, I got you. I, I can tell you exactly how because we talk daily, you know. And so let me kind of read some of the stuff he said. Uh, professionally, um, it puts the job into perspective. What's a big deal and what's not, you know. Um, it makes you able to take things less serious that are not as serious and focus on the more violent crime and evil people, not your normal everyday folks with expired registrations and whatnot, which to me, you know, again, going back to, you know, way earlier, I became a cop. If I wanted to write tickets, I would have worked for Plano PD. Sorry, Plano. <laughs> sorry, but, you know, I had to do it. Or I would have gone out to Irving or, or, or whatever. You know, I ended up here in Dallas, and I found out early in my career that, that I want to be a real cop. Again, that's not insulting people because, I mean, there's a lot smarter people getting paid more than we do as Dallas officers out, mm-hmm. you know, writing tickets to the taxpayers. <laughs> you know, but that's just, that's not me. Um, personally, it made me less trusting of people in general. Um, you know, it can separate you from from your everyday man, you know, um, especially, you know, regarding some of these these millennials or whatever you want to call them these days, these spoiled people. That, that have never suffered a, a hard day in their life and they want to criticize our law enforcement, um, criticize our soldiers, our military, and they hadn't had a day one of, of being in the trenches, of making any kind of sacrifice, but they're going to get on Instagram, whatever, TikTok, whatever, Facebook, and, and just be the loudest, most ungrateful little people, American citizens that they can be. Um, and it makes me feel sorry for the generations of cops behind me, even our soldiers that um, have to deal with this, uh, with these policies and procedures that have been set in place uh, that are just so basically anti-law enforcement, really. And it's us, it's our own people doing it to ourselves, bending to the uh, to the media, 
And so I'm here for the officers. And don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll still do whatever it, I got to do for a, for a citizen out there, a person in need. But I'm here for the police officers to make them hard to kill in July 7th or on an op, running a warrant on patrol. Um, it's obvious you're passionate and, and you invest so much in training. Yeah, that's what I do. That's, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a trainer and, and oh man, I love these guys that I work with. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean that in a literal sense, you know, and I, I take responsibility for them. I'll fight for them. And that's, you know, I'm, that's what's left of me in my, you know, last few years of, of this job is, is I'm here for the officers. You know, Matt, one thing, I, being here at the DPA for as long as I have been now, you know, you were worried about uh, sounding negative after Misty sounds so positive. I right. think you sound great, but and, and one thing you just said there at the end, I sat here and listened to the guys, these old guys retire and do their little speeches, and they don't ever remember the command staff or the politics. And the thing they say that you're going to miss the most is the friendships and relationships and the team work they've done. So. I think the stuff you've said is what people are going to remember from this, you know, because you want to, sure. you know, yeah. get home to your family, get home, get your friends home, and finish the job like you guys did, and that stairwell. Yeah. You did. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and you know, and and I don't want to leave here without throwing the due shout outs where they where they belong. You know, I've had I had good trainers, um, some old crusty street cops too. You know. Um, some of them with horrible reputations that I just love them to death, you know. And, and, and you know, we're talking the 20, 30-year-old street cop patrol officers. Lee Bollinger comes to mind, you know. Uh, Carl Wackeltz up in narcotics, you know. After after July 7th, 7 o'clock in the morning, I still hadn't slept. There's a knock at my door. And I'm like, man, what in the who? You know, I'm all walking the door with a rifle, you know. I'm still all spun up, you know. I crack the door, and there's Wack with a bottle of Crown Royal pushes right past me as soon as the door cracks open he just pushes right past me with a bottle of whiskey he's like, i ain't leaving till this is empty <laughs> you know and so we went to my kitchen table and we talked you know and that was that was an, an incredible thing that he did for you know a friend in need and true friend true friend yeah garrett hellinger he's another one um golly that dude taught me about patience and discipline and just uh being smart, thinking smart, you know, um, and I've, I've just got a lot of mentors and I'd, I'd say idols that I, that when I need guidance, you know, my twin brother, you know, I got, I got plenty of people that I can call and rely on and, and I want these officers to realize they do too. And it's, it's sad how when you get in a, a crisis and you think you don't, but you do, you do, you just got to realize it. Matt, I want to ask one final question. What you would tell a recruit that's in the academy right now? What what can they what can they do to prepare for what's out there? To learn from what what you've experienced? I would tell them um, <clears throat> if you if you want to get deep into this job, it's there. You can do that, and I highly, highly encourage it. Um, Mental, mental and physical preparation is, you know, I can't put yourself in situations. So when you are in that situation, you will have a game plan. It's just like running through a, a fire drill with your house, I mean, with your family, your household, in case a fire happens. Oh, damn, I've been here, I know what to, I know what to do. 
um, and, and from an undercover perspective, that's extremely critical that you have to do that. But, but uh, from a patrol or any sort of law enforcement perspective, it needs to be totality, on duty, off duty, with your family, with your wife, have verbiage, know what to say when you call 911, know what your partner's gonna do, um, rehearse these things, and you can, you'll be ahead of the curb when a deadly, a violent encounter occurs, and you're not caught behind the curve like what do I do and just in a, in a complete state of panic where your, your first reaction is going to be dive under the table as opposed to react you know um, train train hard firearms I can't emphasize firearms enough firearms training um, and this job sucks man with all the extra jobs and, the, and everything it's so easy to get out of shape I mean it is so easy to be an out-of-shape police officer. You can't you can't save yourself when you can't go at least one round before cover gets there. And I would say mental, physical preparation, uh, mental rehearsal is my best advice to give. And you'll know what to do when the situation comes. It's just whether it's up to you to do it or not. Brother, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. Thank awesome. you. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> your story is incredible. It's going to touch a lot of people. And what you're doing now, training our department, our department is in better hands and the city is safer because you're training officers to protect them. Thank you, man. You're welcome. It was an honor. Appreciate it. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Mrs. A. Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you.
No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on you.